Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. Barry, episode 204, you know what that means, my man? Four episodes to go for our four-year anniversary. Is it only a month away? And that is true, my man. Uh, good math wow. uh, there, Barry. We're very proud of you. So, Barry, want to state on the show today, we have part two of our interview with former WCW uh, referee Jimmy Jetter, old friend, some good Eric Bischoff dirt, some good, oh, let's see who else, Brian Pillman dirt, some good Tommy Rich dirt, oh, and Marcus Bagwell dirt. So that's uh, certainly an interview you're going to want to listen to, especially if you are a fan of the old school WCW days. Our match of the week goes to July 19th, 1986, Columbia, South Carolina, at his Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express, taking on uh, those dastardly Andersons, Ole and Arn. Besides that, I am going to offer up a little trial with porno involved. Barry, I know we're going to love that. And what else we got, Barry? Oh, Barry, let's start off with this little gem. This morning, finalizing the whole cancer story that I'm sure you're all sick of now. Barry, I had my port removed. For those who are unknowing, Barry, do you know what a port is? I do, but where did what did you have the what was the port? Where was the port? The was port your- was in my upper upper right chest. Uh, a port, for those of you who do not know, is a an access point so that they don't have to constantly stick you in the arm uh, when they're going to give you some sort of IV treatment. It's basically uh, something that lets them access you. Uh, so that you you don't have to be a human pin cushion. So I, I basically have had this in for 15 months. I know I finished my treatment almost a year over a year ago. Uh, however, uh, the uh, administrator of my estate, Mrs. Bowdrin, said, we're going to wait till your deductible is met. My deductible was met. So Barry, this morning, <laughs> oh, little Valium, my man. <sighs> was a good wow. Time. Good time. Nice. I, I believe you might have said, send some my way. Uh, can yeah. you confirm or deny that? I can confirm that 100%. So absolutely. Barry, help me in welcoming back our old friend Jimmy Jet for part two. Part two of our interview with him. Let's talk the WCW years. Jimmy, first of all, welcome back, my man. How you doing? Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm doing fantastic and a pleasure to be back with you guys. I really enjoyed the other night. Uh, as you should have, because we're basically two very nice guys. Anyway, so let's talk about the WCW years, Jim. First of all, how did you go, you know, we touched upon your time working for Jim Crockett Promotions. We talked about your time in Memphis, uh, your time in Florida. How did you uh, go from there to getting into WCW? So there was probably a five to six year segue from championship wrestling from Florida slash Jim Crockett Promotions that started around 87 um, till around 92, where they still would give me a call, but this is still NWA, Jim Crockett, a guy named Ron West, super nice guy. He was running the referees and running some other towns for um, NWA. So they would reach out for me, and I would still be able to referee um, NWA shows, Miami and Jacksonville, Orlando. There was stuff in Tampa, sometimes Miami. So it was great to be able to still be involved. I had begun full strong into the hotel business at that point and was doing well with that, but had a great um, involvement um, still with Jim Crockett and NWA. Jody Hamilton, God rest his soul, um, great man. Uh, he then uh, began booking referees 
And uh, he reached out to me and uh, we, we started meet, talking at the next show that I did. And uh, he really was just a super nice guy. And I guess he kind of took a liking to me and he said, look, you know, there's some things that are developing and um, would you have a, additional availability? Uh, he understood that I was investing in myself, not, not financially, but I was investing myself in the hotel industry at that point. Um, and uh, so he's, I, but I, you know, wrestling was, it was my love. And of course I said, yes, uh, I want to continue to be involved. And um, 1993 came along and I got a contact from Jody to be at these Disney tapings that were going to happen. Didn't know much more about it than that. I showed up at MGM studios at Disney in Orlando, Florida. And um <clears throat> that's where my WCW official relationship came. It was all much more formal, had to fill out almost like new hire paperwork, that kind of thing. It was kind of, it was actually the first signal to me that this thing was bigger than the typical territory wrestling by the fact that they were really wanting that kind of information from you so that they could generate payroll checks, you know, instead of a handwritten check out of a ledger, like you used to get in every territory. Uh, and that was my first exposure to Eric Bischoff and seeing what his vision and hearing his vision, I should say, all of us, hearing his vision, standing in the locker room on the very first day of the Disney MGM tapings. And it was a it was a phenomenal experience. Wow. So you, so you brought up Eric Bischoff and we talked about this briefly, I think, on your last appearance, too. So what was your interaction with Eric Bischoff like? Did it in, in I guess it's a two part question. Did that interaction change from, say, your first day to when you left the company, or was Eric consistent the entire way through with you? Uh, I would say he was consistent with, you know, I, I built some trust with him, and I built some uh, evidence of responsibility for him. Eric was a real businessman. He wasn't just a wrestling promoter. He was an executive by trade, um, and he appreciated somebody that had business acumen. And that's not to say that the boys didn't have business acumen because many do, but uh, Jeff and Barry, you both have spent enough time around professional wrestlers to understand that their optic on life is quite different than just about any other human, you know, specimen out there, so to speak. Um, there's a ton of them that think life is a work, that the world is a work, you know, that, that everything is, uh, uh, is negotiable, um, and it's all there for the taking, dependent upon how hard somebody says no. That's changed a lot. You know, the whole slice of today's professional wrestler is much different, but that's the way it was in the 70s and 80s and the 90s, and so we're in the early 90s, and I moved a whole lot different than these other cats, including other referees. Um, so Eric, and I would have these just little conversations. Uh, he was really considering moving to Orlando at that time instead of Atlanta, or at least getting a second house because of all the time that they were spending. And so he was asking me a lot about real estate and values. And we had a lot of great conversations at that point. Um, but listening to him lay out what his dream and vision for WCW was in 1993, and keep in mind, just some of the names sitting in the room at this time, this is Harlem Heat and Colonel Robert Parker. So this is before Booker T became the gigantic star that he was. And uh, Van Vader sitting, the big Van Vader is sitting there. Um, Mick Foley, I still think he was going by Cactus Jack there. 
Um, lots of other guys just sitting there hearing this, but I could tell that this was really going to take off. I had no doubt that this was going to take off, and I didn't think that it was going to get to the success level that they actually did. Um, but it it was it was really good. He he laid it all out. There were a lot of naysayers. In fact, most of them were there. Paul Levesque was there as terrorizing. This was his first entry into the ter- into uh, WCW. I don't even think he had worked a match yet, so he was going by terrorizing. And and you, you could tell this guy had been trained. I think Killer Kowalski trained Triple H, um, but he uh, he had a great business acumen even back then. So where he's at today and what he's doing and how he handles the business with WWE doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, but then, you know, I developed other relationships along with being what I felt like was a good referee. Um, I was, uh, to my understanding, well thought of. Eric had a, uh, an, assi- an executive assistant by the name of Janie Engel. I dealt a lot with Janie, very nice lady. Jody was highly trusted, and I was in Jody's circle, so that counted for a lot. Kevin Sullivan, uh, Terry Taylor, you know, Dusty liked me, Arn Anderson liked me. So, again, I kept my nose clean. I didn't get in trouble. I didn't get into a lot of the shit that a lot of these guys were getting involved in and causing trouble. And Disney, you don't play with Disney. It's a very serious environment. Um, You play by their rules. And so there was these constant reminders and reprimands to, to the workers and other people affiliated with WCW. But I would go in there and I did my stuff. And, and, you know, true story Hulk Hogan is filming Thunder in Paradise on Disney property at those studios in a different stage set, though. Um, And uh, this was while Eric was slowly negotiating with Hulk to have him come in on that first big run, 94-ish. Eric is the guy that he gave me the envelope to take over to Hulk Hogan at the Thunder in Paradise uh, set. Uh, that had information in there for them to get together later that day for the essentially the first in-person meeting that was going to be related to him coming into WCW. So it was, there's been lots of stories on how Eric made contact with Hulk Hogan, but uh, I can tell you the honest truth is I handed him that first offer pack and layout of the whole plan. And then they had a conversation or dinner later that night. So that was really cool. And, um, uh, but I was off to the races with WCW at that time. and But there were some weird things that were going on. Now, like I tell you, business acumen is a big thing, um, but there was, a, there was a lot of waste. And I, I'm going to just give you a, a great example of the waste, uh, an example of some of the waste that we saw. They, I get a call from Janie Engel on a Friday afternoon asking if I can referee at a Nashville pay-per-view that's going to be that Sunday. This is in 94. I almost want to say it was October or November of 94. Um, this is the this is the pay-per-view that Honky Tonk Man walked out because Eric wanted him to drop, the, drop one of the straps. I can't remember. I'm sure we could figure out the month and year, but it was 94. I know that for a fact. In fact, I did Triple H and Alex Wright in a match. That was the only match. And the reason that she's calling me to ask if I can go up there is they don't have enough referees. Okay, great. No problem. They, they give me a first-class ticket to fly out of Orlando to Nashville. 
have a hotel room in downtown Nashville and pay me 750 bucks to be there for the night. When I get to the building, which was the Nashville auditorium, which I think has been demoed now, um, there were three referees there. So I did the first or second match of the night, and that was it. And it just kind of showed there wasn't a lot of organization. That was a lot of wasted money, airfare to pay me, which I had no problem with collecting that check, uh, hotel, and, and just God knows what other kind of waste were going on. But I definitely saw a whole lot of that at, the, at that point in time. But it was super exciting, you know, to do these tapings at MGM. Eventually, they went on to Universal and moved over there. But, you, you know, Eric was bringing in all kinds of different people, and you were meeting a lot of these guys that I, I never got to work with. So it was an exciting time, and I had my hotel career going extremely well, so I never had that stress that a lot of some of these other referees had to carry around. Are they going to be used? Are they going to get fired? Are they going to get cut off the, 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 the call chart? Whatever it may be. So I was super excited and had a lot of awesome experiences doing that. And, you know, that goes all the way through the, the NWO thing where it started in Daytona Beach of all places where I live this very day and have been for six years, uh, but started in July of 96 when NWO was created, when Hulk turned heel. And it was being in that building and watching that happen. There's tons of tape online and on YouTube of it, but being there in person you know, would never do it justice. You could have to, to, to be there in person was a completely different vibe. You know, Barry, one thing I hate about Jim is he just doesn't want to answer a question. He just, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> this will so, be another six hour episode. I can see it happening. So Jim, let me ask you a question. So we have talked about, uh, Eric Bischoff, easy E if you will. Uh, his positive uh, attributes uh, and uh, some negative stuff about him. So from your point of view, uh, you talked about how Eric definitely had a vision of what he uh, wanted to do. So through your interactions with Eric, tell us uh, some more positive things about Eric and then maybe throw in uh, one or two things that you, you didn't like about him. Well, the positive things about Eric that I liked is that, you know, he was an executive and, and, and you have to understand. So this is 93, 94, um, I'm 31, 32 years old. That's a very impressionable type of behavior that I'm watching of him. And he commanded a, a really strong presence amongst both regular people and then professional wrestlers. And it just was an interesting blend of how he made those two worlds come together. And he was very comfortable in those worlds. Um, and so, again, I was very pleased that I was able to interact with him as often as I did. He would ask other people to leave the booking room at MGM very often when they were in meetings. He'd always let me stay. So it was really cool just to sit there in complete silence and listen to things get assembled and listen to interactions that he would have with folks. He, him and Arn Anderson sat down with me in the summer of 96 and offered me a full-time position as a referee. And I declined. And God, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm turning down my childhood dream, but I kind of felt like I've already lived it. I've already done it. It started. I got to do all these cool things. And I knew I was headed for a great uh, opportunity moving ahead with a great career in the hotel business, which is exactly what has happened to me and is happening to this very day. Um, and so, yeah, I lived that childhood dream. Um, 
Eric was a super sharp guy, knew how to talk. He had the gift to gab. He knew how to execute. Um, I will tell you the things that I didn't like about him. I mean, if you, Eric didn't like you, he dismissed you. You were, he, if he spoke to you, you were lucky. And I did see some things where I could see him be a little short or completely non-responsive to a few guys that were some good guys that just didn't know how to have dialogue with, you know, a guy that wasn't born in the business kind of, sort of. Um, so again, Eric, ultimately let his ego get a, get the best of him, I believe. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with becoming a little bit of a character in the business, but as you guys, we all know, history showed, he became very, very involved. And I think that's where he kind of lost a grip on, on things. And the heavier, you know, the heavier equipment you bring in, such as he did with Hogan and Nash and Hall and Savage and, and bringing Flair back and then just lots of different other big names. It, Bret Hart created Goldberg. You, you Sometimes you have to make agreements with those types of people that other people are really pissed off about, particularly creative control. I don't know the specifics. I don't know if anyone has ever put PDFs of the contracts of each of these guys that he brought in online. I doubt that, but uh, there was some creative control. And so that upset a lot of people, but you can't take it away from the guy that, you know, for 83 weeks, he kicked Vince McMahon's butt. And he did that, you know, 96, 97, and part of 98. And, and yes, everything went to hell, but I'm going to give you a theory on that in a second. But, um, you know, nobody ever thought that WWE would ever be dominated to that extent. And uh, he did it. And I, to this day, I mean, it still gets talked about. Bear. Jimmy, were you going to give us an example, though? Well, um, here's the thing. You know, WCW did spend a lot of money. Salaries are expensive. It costs good money to get good people. Entertainment business, corporate America, you pretty much most of the time get what you pay for. Let's keep this in mind. Nitro, WCW, Saturday night. Um, what was the Thursday show, guys? Thunder? Thunder. Thunder, yeah. All of those programming, all of that programming was parked on Turner Networks. There was, Tony Khan is getting $40 million a year from USA and TBS right now for AEW. Um WWE is getting gobs and millions and millions of dollars from USA and Fox. Back in the day, promoters used to pay TV stations to have their territorial wrestling be on the show. And so essentially, Eric had no TV money. There were, these shows were being produced and paid for by Turner and then, and then televised on his own network. Nothing like what Tony Khan and Vince McMahon have created with their respective companies. And for the record, you know, I, I was somewhat of a naysayer when I saw AEW pop up. I thought that Tony Khan was the biggest money mark of all time, and this was going to go down just like all the other big money marks that have been sucked all their money up and then that you've either died or gone away after the boys have used them up. And Tony Khan's going to have the last lap all the way to the bank because of these TV deals he's cut 
and um, the the type of competition that they're giving to WWE, was, which is really really solid for the business. But but yeah, that that, that those are some examples of you know there was Eric was a sharp guy, but again there was never Ted was never going to give up ownership of these of these wrestling programs. But there were probably networks that would have paid for the programming. Uh, but I, nobody, I guess, was thinking about that at the time. I don't know. I don't know the exact specifics. But he did not have a 45, 40, 45 million dollar deal like Tony a year that Tony Khan's got. You know. Yeah. So it, what I remember too, Jimmy, going back to uh, the early '90s, you were managing a couple of different hotels in the Orlando market. And when uh, WCW would come into town, and I, they were at Hollywood Studios for a while, which I remember, uh, a lot of the yeah. boys would actually stay with you at the hotel. They would be by the pool, etc. I actually stayed at the hotel once uh, during all this craziness. And I remember the next morning running into you at breakfast and you were like, did you hear anything last night? Uh, the boys went a little crazy. So what what can you tell us about? and I kind of understand and get that you probably have to dance around this a little bit, but what can you tell us about at, you know, two different lives you're managing a hotel uh, where essentially 50 wrestlers are staying with you and they're not, they're not choir boys. These are what guys could that, possibly go wrong. What could go wrong. But at the same time, you're also an employee with that company as a referee. So how do you balance that? How did you manage that? Well, for, Typically, the way it would work, and in, in, in the early 90s, I was in a, some uh, overseeing two properties uh, on the outskirts of Orlando and Kissimmee, and it was more of the underneath guys or the mid-level guys, and it would be like maybe 10 to 12 rooms. And it, look, I had to set myself up with these guys to make it very clear because their initial approach would always be, hey, Jimmy, buddy, you know, help me out. I need this. I need that. And I had to work in two different worlds. I, this is your rate, guys. This is what you have to pay. A lot of these guys would try to say, hey, can I, I'm short, you know, can I send you this or that? And so they quickly figured out that um, they, had to, they had to pay just like any other guest. There were no free rooms. We weren't doing any crazy low, low rates. They were paying regular rates just like regular guests. And there were some really good guys, too, that were very appreciative of always doing that. And I would go out of my way, actually, to help those guys. And this is early MGM stay, uh, tapings. And then as WCW started growing, and we're talking a young Eddie Guerrero, young Chris Jericho that was staying at my property. And they were just so super nice, so appreciative. A young Chris Benoit, you know, whatever went wrong with that cat, you know, there, it's it's a total tragedy, but you know, for for a lot of people that knew Chris, you you would have never thought that would happen because he was such a nice guy. Um, but uh, and then I came over to the International Drive area in Orlando, had nicer level hotels. Um, WCW would often put some of the higher performing guys in my hotel, but again, that was like free money. You could tell them any rate, and they would pay whatever. Um, it was more often they weren't paying. Eric would stay in our property a lot. But then uh, eventually the high-end guys and Eric wound up staying on Disney properties and then at Universal properties once the tapings went over to the Universal MGM Studios. Um, 
But, uh, you know, there were some crazy situations. You know, Johnny Grunge from Public Enemy stole a WCW production van at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And Johnny was a super nice guy, God rest his soul. Um, him and Ted Petty, both, you know, just two young guys that should have never, you know, be gone. But uh, really nice guys. That was really funny. Johnny got in a lot of trouble over that, but he didn't get fired. But the wildest story from a hotel that I'm in, and this is 94-ish, Brian Pillman, Orange County sheriffs are all over my parking lot uh, at a Marriott residence inn, which are apartment-style hotel rooms, multi-rooms, like two or three-bedroom prop, uh, uh, like apartments. Um, there happened to be a gentleman that was running an escort service out of one of these properties, or one of the, 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 the apartments. And we just had picked up on that after the, you know, after a couple of weeks. And um, and he was a pretty high profile guy. So SWAT and Orange County Sheriff are here in the parking lot. They've got everybody being held in their rooms. And coincidentally, this is like, you know, 4.30. No, no, this was actually about 10.30 in the morning. And um, WCW would have these big coach buses parked alongside the front of the hotel. All the boys would get in there um, and we would take the buses over to WC to, to the TV tapings. And they've been on a standoff with this guy since 7 a.m. in the morning. He hasn't come out. And Pillman, just in his usual crazy self, and that's, that was not made up. That was all real. He's got no shirt on. He's got the typical you know shorts and then the the fanny pack and some boots and he's asking one of the cops what's going on and they're 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 kind of like a little starstruck because they know who he is but then there's another guy that's in command of the whole sheriff's department in the SWAT unit that tells him to basically get the fuck back and get out of the way. Brian knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to get this, I guess no better word, this major pimp out of this uh, apartment and. Out of the blue, Pillman just takes off like a jet. He goes around the backside of the hotel. He gets into his suite, which was next to this cat, goes up through the attic. And then all you see is the door of this, this escort dude's apartment open. And Pillman's got him in a fucking chokehold with the guy's body in front of him, like, I guess, protecting himself in case the cops opened up. And Pillman's waving a hotel towel going, I got the son of a bitch. I got the son of a bitch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he, so Brian Pillman did what 30 SWAT guys couldn't do and 40 Orange County Sheriff officers couldn't do. And that was drag this cat out of his penthouse. And when we went up there, Brian had kicked out all the drywall above the attic of this cat's uh, suite, threw himself through the drywall ceiling and the rafters, and then just dived on the guy, tackled him, and dragged him out the front door. It was in the Sentinel, the Orlando Sentinel, the next day. It was on the news. It was super crazy. And to top it off, Brian just kind of jogs right onto the Disney bus, and off we go to Disney. And it was like nothing. He's covered in drywall and insulation. The boys are just high-fiving the shit out of him. It was pretty wild, yeah. That was probably one of – that's the wildest Brian Pillman story. Besides the fact of doing the I quit match between him and Kevin Sullivan in the Bayfront Center in St. Pete, I didn't. I had no idea what was going to happen. 
So I just went along with the way it went. That was that was pretty wild being in that match. Uh, Barry, before we we go any further, I, I know that you joined me in saying that I am shocked, shocked and surprised to hear that escort services, prostitution, running through Orlando, Florida. Barry, are you shocked as well as I am? You know what I'm upset about, Jeff, is that I actually stayed at that very hotel when Jimmy was managing and, and got no action. Told me. Exactly. <laughs> I never knew hookers on property. Fuck. That's terrible. If I had so, only known Jim. <laughs> so, Jim, uh, first of all, I didn't realize that you, you managed the, uh, the I Quit match between Sully and, and Pillman. Are you refed it, I mean? Yeah, I left the I Quit match uh, between Sullivan and Pillman. I sure did. Okay, so there is and no truth to the rumor that the uh, I respect you Booker man was directed towards me. No. Uh, you know what? I, 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 I think that it was directed towards Kevin Sullivan, but, you know, Jeff, I too often go to sleep at night believing certain things that make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man, let me, let me ask you. So a lot of the... the uh, the complaints that people have uh, getting back to Eric Bischoff about Eric. And, you know, you, you talked about the guys that when they get a certain contract, they have the quote unquote creative control. So the belief among fans, whether they be casual fans or uh, quote unquote smart marks is that Eric let the inmates run the asylum. So do you think that's a valid complaint? I think it was a perception thing with the fans. And, um, you know, we have to remember the time that we were in our life. It's the mid-90s, guys. There's no social media. There's no internet, really. Internet is just starting, you know, like dial-up is still going on. That AOL is in CompuServe, the only thing out there. So it was a perception thing. Yes, there were certain moves made by Hogan and Nash and Hall that didn't sit well with people. But... Eric was running a large company and he was trying to make it successful. And he did, and he was doing it without a revenue stream that even back then Vince McMahon had that Eric didn't have, because just like now, just like then, not the same amount of money, Vince was getting money from USA network for all of his programming. Eric wasn't. So I think there might've been a little bit of that, Jeff, but I mean, Eric still was running things, and I watched Eric many a time hold his ground uh, very firmly and pissed people off. And um, and it wasn't some, and, and, and it was situations where, you know, it it it, it just had there were, he had to stand his ground, and it wasn't always with mid card guys or underneath guys. I think Eric's biggest crime is that he was so consumed with the upper level of the roster. And that was the most highly featured aspect on the programming we, every week. He, he counted either he didn't keep his eye on the mid-level guys and the luchadors that he was trying to ramp up, or he, didn't, or he didn't have the right people that were reporting to him that were supposed to make sure that those kinds of things were happening. Because if you look at today's game, there are multiple, a lot more agents involved in crafting and scripting a show and making sure everybody's on point. It wasn't like that back then. Uh, it was a lot more looser, less uh, less scripted. And, um, you know, it, it, Eric was in high demand by everybody wanted a piece of Eric when he was around. So he was constantly behind closed doors. 
there'd be a line out the door. It wasn't always wrestlers. It would sometimes be a Disney executive or a Universal executive or a production person um, like Keith or, or, you know, these, it was critical stuff. So the guy was under a lot of stress. Uh, I'm, I'm not defending him. And you know what, Eric wouldn't know me right now if he walked in the, in the office that I'm doing this in at this very moment, but I'm sure he's forgotten me. I wasn't much, you know, I wasn't, I was a referee for God's sake, but um, I, I, this, all this stuff in the past about Eric's the one that drove WCW into the ground. I just, I, 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 I don't buy into all that. When you have all those salaries and you are, you, you, you have sponsorship deals, but you don't have TV money coming in you're never going to balance the scales out. Um, and he did on the front end of things because he had that incredible run, which we all know when you have high ratings, you can, you can charge a hell of a lot more for advertising. When ratings aren't as high as they sh- that you would want them to be, the value of how you can sell advertising changes. So that's, that's what happened to WCW. Well, I tell you what, Barry, before you get to your next question, uh, let me just do a follow-up on that. So the famous, what was it 88 weeks that they were uh, on, on top of the the ratings over uh, WWF? Uh, you know, a line that I remember, this isn't about wrestling, it's about football. When, when George Allen was the coach of the Redskins, uh, one of the quotes that the owner used when he fired George Allen was, I gave him an unlimited budget and he overspent it. So... As you mentioned, Eric Bischoff uh, is on top of the world at some point. He's bringing in lots of advertising, lots of revenue from that. Do you think that quote kind of applies to Eric where he just got to the point where, hey, man, you're doing great, and he kind of like overspent, or was that stuff that was out of his control? Well, he was the final word on on all these high contracts. So, you know, he, he, he can't push that off on anybody else. And you know, I have. I think there was high. There was great value in most of the guys he signed. I, I probably will get shit for this because I I understand how adored and revered Bret Hart is. And he and I, I, I Bret's an awesome worker, but that was a pretty obscene contract that he had, uh, no doubt. And that that never paid off. Okay, and it, it, I guess Goldberg heard him or something like that. But, you know, then there were guys like Goldberg who didn't have mega contracts, you know, who were just these incidental creations. Um, so some of those things would offset, you know, until Goldberg could re renegotiate uh, for bigger money. Um, so, yeah, Eric, had, um, he, he's taken responsibility for some of the contracts. I've, I've heard a few of his shoot interviews where he's taken responsibility for that. But. He also put WCW on the map as a as a as a true direct competitor to what WWE was doing. It, you couldn't compare anything to the way, um, you know, when Ted Turner had things under his control. They never matched up to WWE as far as exposure uh, nationwide, and for that matter, global exposure. Look at the Korean thing. Bischoff is the one that put that together. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, Bischoff. Look, it, and I, I'm the first one that gives Bischoff a lot of shit. I do feel that in some ways he, uh, he kind of, I don't want to say lucked into a position, but he got a position. He was, he was very intelligent 
with a lot of the political moves that he made. But uh, it, one thing I want to I definitely want to bring up, Jimmy, you were there because I, I actually was with you, Ron Lemieux. I forget who else was with us uh, that day, but you were in Daytona. Uh, coincidentally, right right near the hotel that you're managing, uh, the night that Hulk Hogan turned heel and joined the NWO. And we had been talking about that in the entire car ride from Orlando over to Daytona. Uh, what was it like that night being in the back of really what was truly a historic event with him turning heel? What was the buzz in the back that night? There was a little bit of buzz, but it, honestly, nobody knew. Uh, Hogan didn't arrive to Daytona Beach until around 9.45 or 10 o'clock that night. And he came in a really fancy RV, I remember. And him and um, Brutus, Ed Leslie got out of this RV. And um, and they walked right into the back door. The dressing rooms were uh, off to the side. And they went in an office with Eric. Um, and... At that point, you knew something was going to happen. Uh, it was an incredible night. And, uh, you know, I went back and forth. I was kind of convinced that Hulk would never, ever turn heel. I always, you know, he so highly valued the babyface role and the merchandising. You know, he's went on record as saying he never, ever thought uh, that he would ever get to the heights that he did as the heel. Um, uh, with NWO and beyond, and it was just an incredible vibe. And I do remember you guys. Yeah, I remember us being there. And and didn't we go eat barbecue after that? I believe at at the barbecue place right next to the Ocean Center. Yeah, and then we actually would. Of course, you remember that. Then what I remember is we stopped at Krispy Kreme on the way home. Twenty five yeah, yeah. later, if there's a donut involved, Jimmy, I'm going to remember that. And I still go to that Krispy Kreme, which is literally, you know, 10 minutes from where I live here in Daytona. It's an original. It was built in the 50s, and it's the same building. And I'm really, really, I like that kind of nostalgic thing. As long as you didn't, as long as you didn't go to Dunkin' Donuts, because then Barry would have a real problem with you. Yeah, I think I shared my love of Dunkin' Donuts coffee with Barry about a month ago when we were having dinner. And, um. Barry was like, no, you like Dunkin' Donuts coffee? I'm like, yeah, it's my favorite coffee. I could tell he wasn't a fan. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I reached across the table and I grabbed him by the collar. What are you talking about? Yeah. So let me ask you, Jim, uh, about during that time, one thing that I think is fair to say uh, is that wh whether it was the guys that were uh, with the higher contracts or, or even mid-card guys, you know, a wrestling locker room is always filled with politicians uh, in the locker room. So you got you got uh, the Hulkster, you got Eric Bischoff, you got guys like Holland Nash, uh, Bret Hart. Who to you was the biggest locker room politician in WCW? So I'd have to make that judgment in when I would when I would be in situations where like everyone would be in a rock a locker room because by this time, especially when you're actually doing tapings at real studios versus like an armory or a civic center, you, a, a lot of the upper level cats they have their own dressing room. So I'm not interacting as much with them uh, when they're in their own dressing rooms, but in a full forum dressing room. And when we'd be in different venues, that's sometimes where 
people would be in the full forum in the catering area. There were a lot of silos of people. The luchadors kind of stayed off to themselves. A lot of the new guys, you know, like the, the Chris Jerichos and the people that they were bringing in had their little group of folks. But, I mean, Nash and Hall were great politicians, but they were also pretty entertaining. You could literally just sit there in the dressing room and just listen to them banter back and forth with themselves and with other guys that they were cool with. They wouldn't banter with everybody. They had their chosen ones. But Nash's comedic timing was incredible. I, I remember that. And, you know, he overall, he was a, he was a pretty nice guy. And, and when Hall wasn't screwed up, he, he, you know, he was a nice guy, too. Um, I always loved the Razor Ramon gimmick, to be honest with you. And, and it was one of my favorite gimmicks that I'd ever seen. But, uh, yeah, he, um, I'd say Hall and Nash would probably be the biggest politicians. DDP was, you know, he, he was in good with Eric. And a lot of the boys would, you know, knock Dallas because he would want to go through his match from beginning to end. And a lot of the guys just like to call it the ring, which is really the way things should be unless there's certain special spots or stories that are supposedly trying to get told. Um, I, what was funny is seeing some of the mid-level guys attempt to be politicians or attempt to get over. And th you just kind of wanted to go up to some of those guys sometimes and go, you are doing nothing but burying yourself. Just the best thing you can do is keep your mouth shut and just do what you're told and, and move on. But um, look, there were some, a lot of interesting things that went on there. Uh, Steve Austin was there. He was scheduled to do a TV match against the Renegade. Eric gave me the finish. Renegade's going over Steve. I go back, and Eric, uh, Steve would stay at this Holiday Inn. I was GMing on iDrive, and he was a really great guy, super nice guy. And um, he said, what do he say? And I said, well, Steve, he's got Renegade going over. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. He goes, um, uh, you go back and just let Eric know, like, let's do something else. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So I go back and I go in the room and I'm like, Eric, so Austin, he doesn't want to do that. And he goes, Jimmy, you just go back and you tell Steve he's going to do what he's told. If not, to take his boots off, pack his bag and go home. So I'm kind of nervous because I don't want to kind of tell Steve what he doesn't want to hear. But I'm a big boy. So I walk and I'm, this was two separate buildings. So I walk. There's just a small outdoor hallway i walked from eric's setup through the outdoor hallway into the dressing rooms of the second building where which are the back side of the stage where we're going to film and tape and i said to steve um and steve just looks me dead in the eye that he don't want to change it right i'm like yes steve i'm sorry and he goes no it's okay and he and i wasn't going to tell steve austin that eric said take your boots off and pack them and go home i just felt that was fucking disrespectful as hell but, Eric, but Steve had already figured it out. He goes, all right, boys, I'll see you. And he's put all his stuff in his bag, and he got his rental car, and he left. And there's stories out there. I've even heard Eric speak to the fact that he fired Steve Austin at the tapings. He did not. They fired Steve, I don't know, three or four days later via FedEx or a week later. But Eric didn't fire Steve that day in the taping. So people's memories get screwed up sometimes, I think, over time.
They do too. I think that was, I think part of the reason that I've given Eric Bischoff some shit was the fact that he let a lot of talent, a lot of really very successful talent slip through his fingers. And, uh, in Steve Austin, I think was at the very, very top of the list of guys that that happened with. So Jimmy, we are uh, running out of time, but I know that there's a story out there and I wanted to touch on this. I have remembered this story for over 30 years and I don't remember all the details, but you did tell me one night uh, a story. You were managing a hotel and I think it was one, I want to say it was one in Kissimmee and it was a story about Kajro Vizari, about the Iron Sheik staying at your hotel. Do you remember that? The Iron Sheik. You know what? You're going to have to jog my memory on that <laughs> one, Barry. So he, uh, I, I, it was, I think you were, you know, you're the GM of the hotel. Your hours generally are, you know, eight to five, nine to six, somewhere in there. I believe you were at home and you received a phone call around two o'clock in the morning that there is a maniac in the lobby that says he's a professional wrestler. And somebody from the hotel had called you. It turned out to be the Iron Sheik that was on some sort of bender and was literally going crazy in your hotel. You don't remember this? See, I, I think it wasn't the Sheik. This was Tommy Rich was in the hotel. Ricky Morton was in the hotel. This involved a fan who confronted one of the guys at the bar. He wound up body slammed on the windshield of another guest car that from the second floor. These were exterior entry hotel rooms. This guy got body slammed off the top up from the second floor through the windshield of another guest car. I, I'm not having a recollection of the sheet, but I do remember that there was a whole lot of damage and it involved Tommy Rich and um, and Ricky Morton was in the room next door. And this is that that the story I'm speaking of. This is like around 92 or 93. Yeah. So I'm not remembering the sheet one, though. No. And your story Sorry. is actually better, Jimmy. So I'm actually going to get a guy getting body slammed. Onto a car from the second the second story that that story wins. <laughs> so, yeah, because what what had happened is Tommy had ran up a eight hundred dollar uh, bill at the bar and didn't no. have to pay it. Yeah, and so you know the the next day I wound up speaking to him and we got it all straightened out and he was able to cobble together some money from some of the boys and he paid it. But you have to remember. So many of these guys were used to taking people. They would befriend hotel managers, restaurant managers, taxi guys. But, you know, the, the girls that were on the road will save the terminology that they used to be called as out of respect. Because, you know, that they would just take these folks for everything. And I, I, I let, don't get me wrong. I, I, I will admit to have many starstruck moments, but I was pretty expert at concealing those, especially when it was related to a business that I was responsible for operating properly and responsibly. So it got, the word got around pretty quick. Um, and Booker T would, he, him and I got along real well. And Booker would consistently tell me, you ever have an issue with any guy in this industry that tries to screw you over as it relates to any hotel you're running, you let me know. There, there was a little problem with Marcus Bagwell once when he was starting to 
get ahead bigger than any guy in the business and thinking he was some kind of top star. And um, Booker and him had a little conversation. Uh, it, it, it had to do with Marcus's mother calling the hotel and wanting things, special things done for him and things put in his room for him. And I happened to mention that to Booker T. <laughs> Booker T went off and just confronted Marcus at the studios and said, your mama is calling Jimmy Jet telling you to put chocolate chip cookies and milk in your bedroom. <laughs> he goes, you're a, you're a puss, Marcus. And, you know, that, that is a true story. I That's love funny. fucking Booker T, man. I had bought a brand new 94 black Trans Am T-Tops, black on black Trans Am, and Booker took it out and drove it. He, he loved it. He, this is right when him and Stevie Ray were starting to get a little traction. And he's like, when I get back to Houston, I'm looking at these. I'm going to buy one. Booker's a great guy. And Stevie was a good guy. All right. Hey, Jim, I just want to say on behalf of Barry, we certainly appreciate you coming in for part two of the Jimmy Jet interview, the WCW years. My man, we are very appreciative. My pleasure, guys. Really appreciate it. And you guys have a great evening. Okay. And we look forward to seeing you. Thanks, uh, Jimmy. By the way, Barry, uh, is it not true that Jimmy Jet? will be joining us in Lutz, Florida. So this will be the second plug that I can get in this episode. Jimmy Jett will be making, if I'm correct, his first ever FanFest appearance and certainly his first CWF Legends FanFest appearance. November the 6th, the beautiful suburb of Lutz, Florida. Jimmy will be there. Jimmy, you will be there for a full day. We are going to laugh. We're going to cry. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're g- it's going to be like a family reunion, Jimmy. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, Barry, and I'm looking forward to just kind of staying in that background and just uh, ob- soaking it all in and observing everything and just, you know, listening and having a great time as a fan um, and listening to these incredible legends. And uh, I, kudos to you for the, the menu of, of and the roster of people you have attending this. I mean, this is this is really amazing. And uh it is it is very sad that Jody Hamilton will not be joining us because I, I, I just got to say in closing that Jody Hamilton, as gruff as he may have ever seemed to everybody, and you know this, guys, because y'all were friends with him, Jody was such a great human being, and he cared about people, and he's just a really good dude. I love Jody Hamilton. All right. Thanks again, Jim, for joining us. We Take appreciate care, it. Guys. So, Barry, our match of the week. This week, we referenced it last week uh, before we got to the Valter match, and that was July 19th, 1986, Rock and Roll Express versus Ole and Arn. Oh, those dastardly Andersons. And Barry, I believe, if I recall correctly, you said this is about as good a match as you were going to get in 1986. Am I correct, my man? You are 100% correct, Jeff. Check. So. Here we have, first of all, a Crowdberry just absolutely on fire. And, you know, I, I, I read something, uh, a quote that was attributed to Arn Anderson uh, saying, you know, mid-80s, if you wanted to get any kind of heat uh, and you were a heel, all you had to do was beat the stew out of the Rock and Roll Express and especially Ricky Morton. Barry, you had a chance to watch this match. Tell the good folks here at Breaking Cafe with Badrin and Barry what you thought about this match. It's a it is a fantastic match. And I should say too, Jeff, that Ricky and Robert, collectively known as the Rock and Roll Express, will be the headliners what? of next 
Oh, yeah. Perfect product placement. It's like we segued that deliberately. Yeah, almost. But we didn't even talk about it beforehand. We just knew where I was probably going to go with that. <laughs> uh, CWF Legends Fan Fest 7 taking place on November the 6th in Lutz, Florida. Lutz is a Lutz, Lutz, whatever you want to call it, a suburb of Tampa. A it's bustling a, suburb. Bustling. Great area. There is a Publix down the street. There is a Culver's 10 minutes away. There's a lot of options. Portillo's. Uh, Portillo's just minutes away. There's a Hungry Greek. Jeff, you were the Hungry Greek. You tried Zatziki. I did. Uh, yes, you did. Uh, but very excited for this. We need a fan fest. And, uh, you know, I, I was down at the gathering in Charlotte a few weeks ago, and uh, I saw that our good friend Benji Fido was recently at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame banquet induction which was up in upstate New York. I believe that was this past weekend. So it's great to see that even though there are things that are taking place out there, that people are excited to get back out mask, not masked, whatever your preference is, go for it, but be involved, do stuff, have fun. And I'm excited, Jeff, Jerry Jarrett, Bill after, as I mentioned, the rock and roll express, Mad Maxine, Bugsy McGraw, uh, did I say Jerry Briscoe? I don't know. I, I, I didn't say Jerry Briscoe. No, that's Jerry pretty Briscoe. good. Yeah, we got a we got a bunch of talent. We're still going to add Dave one more. Dave Penzer. Oh wait a minute, is that talent? I don't know. Dave Penzer got it. So this is the the we really haven't discussed this. So Dave Penzer has been with Impact Television, uh, which would make Javorski crank off more than usual. Uh, Penzer's been a part of what they do for the last few years on and off. And with this merger now of, uh, I guess, what is it? No forbidden doors or whatever the tagline is where all these companies are working together with the exception of ROH and the WWE, all these companies have got together and Penzer uh, essentially is now in some form kind of working with AEW as well, which I find really interesting. He is, uh, I can call Dave, well, I shouldn't say this on air that, you know, cause we, we may have people listening, but I can call Dave and get the scoop right off the bat on shit. That that's actually he happening. Is a, he is a, yeah. you're no Alex Marvez. Well, but who is, who is an Alex Marvez? So AEWtickets.com. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, at some point, you'll tell everyone that story. <laughs> not, truly, truly. But everybody understands it, not just me. But uh, it is. Uh, I'm very excited, Jeff. It's going to be a great weekend. I'm going to. This is something I've decided to. I'm going to get in a day or two early. I'm as everybody knows. And you got to admit the fact that I'm going to talk about buying a house in the middle of a Rock and Roll Express versus Anderson match is arguably as left turn as you're ever going to get is Dave Penzer going to be your real estate broker. So Dave, I have, I'm not working with anyone exclusively because oh. it seems whenever I hit Zillow, I get contacted. So I've got about 10 real estate agents I'm working with apparently, but at this stage, nobody's brought forth anything. But point I'm making is I'm going to get down a few days early before the fan fest, look at some houses, check out neighborhoods and areas. And then I am going to stay afterwards. I am not sure how long I'm staying, Jeff. There is a great chance I am going to stay for three additional weeks, mm. So, which is fucking insane. I have got. Does eight, that mean uh, you're going to get some time by the pool or beach? Yes, it does. It's, oh. it's hopeful that I'm going to get a lot of fucking time by the pool or beach. But somebody, uh, if you remember, I had that beach house this past summer for a week. That beach house has been offered to me once again, beginning November 21st. So in my head, I'm going. So I'm going to drive down to Florida and then on the 8th 
I'm going to drive back and then I'm going to drive back down on like 10 days later, like the 18th or 19th and start making my drive. It doesn't make any sense. So if I can figure out without breaking the bank, how I can stay housed between the end of the fan fest and the 21st of November, I'm not coming back. Ozzy and I are going to be down in Florida and we'll stay for three weeks to a month, whatever it is. Uh, but very excited, Jeff. And how long are you going to be in town for? Have you decided? Uh, folks, don't worry. We're going to get to the match eventually. Uh, you know, I'm looking at like three days. I, I have to say a lot of this depends on the air uh, airplane situation because, of course, I have a reservation. Uh, and much like Seinfeld, I don't know if they'll be able to hold the reservation because, ah. uh, you know, some of the flights getting canceled that I've heard. Uh, I'm hoping by November uh, any problems vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the airlines will have been resolved and I'll be able to get on my flight and not have any problems. But as Mrs. Bowdrin said to me the other day, yeah, you know, you can always drive down. And, uh, you know, Jeff, I, I was just going to say that. that to you. I was just going to say to you, I personally, I love the drive because it brings me through areas I'm not normally in. I can check out restaurants. I just I enjoy it. Uh, I have no I, I hate fucking traffic, but I love the drive down. So when I'm not sitting in traffic, I'm fine. Uh, this is so initially. Ah, and this, this hurts me a little bit. So Jody Hamilton was going to drive down, Jeff, and I was going to surprise you and say, we've talked to Nick Patrick and they would love to have you in the car. And uh, unfortunately, as we know, Jody passed away. I'm not sure if Nick is still coming. We, we thought it was the right thing to do in, in not canceling Nick. So Nick still may be driving down, Jeff. I don't mm. know if that's exactly, but... How, how cool would it have been in a car ride with you, Nick Patrick, and Jody Hamilton from Atlanta? That would have been, that would have been pretty sweet. That would have been sweet. So I kind of was trying to play this and get you hooked up for this. And do, uh, I, do, I, do I pay like uh, what is it, twenty cents a mile plus trans? You know, trans. You know, uh, it's, you gotta you gotta blow somebody, Jeff. Well, uh, you know, the, yeah. So should we, should we the match? Remember the oh match? yeah, the match. <laughs> So the match, the match is great. And look, it's uh, and I think that comment about Arnett, what you said about Arn, that Arn said, I, I think that's really accurate, too, because Ricky and Robert were both so over, uh, both so connected with the fan base. Uh, Ricky, I guess, especially, you know, just a great worker, but was able to connect. And, and really, it was rare. He was able to connect with the female population, which obviously loved him which had a crush on him, but even the guys were into Ricky, Ricky Moore, not in a sexual, you know, maybe they were, I don't know, but it's it, everybody was into the rock and roll express at that stage. And I'll tell you what, with the Andersons as well, I, uh, you know, Oli to me has always been kind of a polarizing figure. And, uh, I, I definitely feel like Oli went on too long at times. Uh, he's a cranky cantankerous, I guess people have said he's very unpleasant. Some people defend him, but he's very unpleasant in real life. And I think that he made is the work. living embodiment of the character played by Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. There you go. Which was Get a, off my lawn. Fantastic movie. And because my mind is everywhere today, I did not take any medication. So I am scattershot. Uh, Clint Eastwood's got a new movie coming out and he's in his 90s and he's still acting, correct? Yes, it's a Western. His wow. first Western since Unforgiven, for my money the greatest Western ever made. Boom, there I said it. 
Will you be there on opening day when this movie's released, Jeff? Well, it's being released also to HBO Max, so uh, I can oh. assure you that I'll be watching it on the uh, the there opening day. There you go. So getting back to the match. Yes. What that has to do with Ricky and Robert? <laughs> nah, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So they were uh, – This look, this is a great match. This is uh, tag team wrestling in its heyday and what it was. Not, not current tag team wrestling because I almost feel it's a little too produced and a little too slick. But guys like the Andersons worked the arm – you know, it, and that's what they would do for 20 minutes. And it was a really successful formula, but it did get me thinking about Oli on a lot of different levels. And a lot of it had to be, you know, you look at Oli's partnerships and Oli teamed with Gene for years, very successful team throughout the Carolinas, Georgia had shots in Florida. Uh, it, you know, Oli spent time with Lars and then Oli, you know, he's in his forties, I'm assuming at that point, And he hooks up with a young Marty Lundy. And uh, it turns him into Arn Anderson. And he's got another successful run as a tag team wrestler. And I don't think Oli gets enough credit. There's a lot of shit given to him based off his personality, based off of maybe certain booking decisions. Uh, the fact that he is cantankerous and is great for sound bites with some of the shit that he says. But at the same time, here was a guy that for, I don't know, arguably maybe a couple of decades was a part of a successful tag team with several different partners. Uh, you know, so a lot of respect with that. I, I do highly recommend this match, though, Jeff. So uh, it goes uh, your proverbial Broadway, which is uh, that's a little different. You know, we don't yeah. always sometimes we have the screw job finishes, the clean finishes. But uh, going to a time limit draw uh, is kind of interesting. I have to say to me, I'm going to just put this out there. The biggest negative about this match, oh, my God, D David Crockett just was, uh, you know, the, doing the whole, hey, look at him, Tony, hey, look at him, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> and he's throwing non sequiturs out there. First time we've used that phrase. Uh, I'm like, what does that have to do with the match? You know, like, uh, and I, I don't know. But, but that being said, you take away David Crockett from the uh, equation. And, and let me just say. For all you people that, you know, and, and I see out there that, that bitch about Jim Ross on AEW, let me tell you something. Jim Ross, half in the bag, is still a better announcer than David Crockett was in 1986. You know, I'm sure David Crockett might be a really nice guy. I don't know. I've never met the man. Okay. But he just kind of kept going off the rails as an announcer. He'd like just start talking about stuff that had nothing to do with the match. It was just kind of very strange and weird. This is a really strong. Uh, Broadway goes uh, eh, 20, 21 minutes uh, thereabouts. The Rock and Roll Express are just so freaking over. So let me just put this out there, Barry. Were the Rock and Roll Express the greatest babyface tag team of all time? Now, before you answer that question, sure. I, know, I know you're a Graham and Kern fan, okay? I know we got people out there that'll say Ricky Steamboat, Jay Youngblood. Uh, you know, we had Greg Gagne on our Patreon. Uh, or fixing to have Greg Gagne on our Patreon, uh, Greg and Jim Brunzel, tremendous babyface team in the AWA. But, and then of course we get the Von Erichs out in Texas. I think maybe the Von Erichs are the closest to a team that was so over that literally the fans could cry when they were getting beat on. Is yeah, that fair? Yeah, yeah, it, it and there was, there was a different, I, yeah, I, I like that. That's, you've given this obviously a lot of thought. My first instinct is I would group uh, the Rock and Roll Express in with the Fantastics and the Fabulous Ones. These were three teams that were all born uh, really within a year or two of each other. Uh, they all tried to reach great heights. I do think out of 
those three teams, I think the rock and roll was probably the most successful. Uh, but what you just said, are they the most over baby face tag team of all time? I'm going to say, yeah, and I'm, it, clearly this is not my, they're not my favorite tag team of all time either, but it, I think what they did, what they accomplished, uh, the only thing with the Von Eriks, it's a very good comparison to the Von Eriks. It's just the Von Eriks never took it to a national level. Yes, I know there was the ill-fated tour where they did hit a few cities. And Lynn, they, Massachusetts. I still remember that. Very they were big in Israel, apparently, yes, yes. which is always odd to me that, you know, uh, that they were big in Israel. But at the same time, the rock and roll essentially were a national act and the Von Eriks were not. And look, I know that they were still really popular and people love them. And had they brought the Von Eriks in uh, to either the WWF or the NWA, this might've been a different conversation. I don't know that for a fact, but I think based off of what we have, I would say as a baby face tag team, the rock and roll express are probably the greatest of all time, at least than I can recall. But with that caveat, Jeff, not my favorite tag team of all time. So let me just throw this out there as I was watching the four guys in the ring. Okay. I'm going to throw some names at you, Barry. Ken Lucas, Eddie Gilbert, Ricky Gibson, Jerry Stubbs, Tully Blanchard, Bobby Eaton, Larry Zabisco, Gene Anderson, Lars Anderson, Ivan Koloff. All those guys I mentioned, those 10 names, all at some point were connected with one of the four guys in this match which goes to show you the four guys in this ring completely are tag team royalty in my, in my opinion. And any, any kind of tag team, you know, a uh, hall of fame where you're just putting a guy in because he had, you know, just more than one great tag team. I mean, Robert and his brother, Ricky were a great tag team. Yes. In Memphis. Uh, Ricky and Eddie Gilbert, Ricky and Ken Lucas. If you have never watched Ricky Morton and Ken Lucas in San Antonio and Southwest wrestling, uh, they're out there uh, and they're a great team. Uh, Jerry Stubbs and, and Arn was a great team. Uh, Arn and Tully. Now, let me just ask you, let me let me stop right there uh, with the Tully Blanchard thing. Uh, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, of course, great, great tag team. But let me ask you to answer this question, Barry. Ole and Arn versus Arn and Tully. I would say, in my opinion, Arn and Tully were a better, quote unquote, working tag team. But I think Ole and Arn were better at being heels. Like Tully was kind of a just like a jerk, uh, like the like what he was in real life, the high school or college quarterback that thinks he's the big man on campus. Whereas Ole was kind of, you know, that uh, that bully in your neighborhood that kind of always kind of scared you, you know. So what do you think about that comparison? That's another fine. You, I, I'm thinking last night you you got high, oh. Jeff. Fire. I think you got high and you started to look for the meaning of life and you've come up with all these, these, I was great... listening to the Ravi Shankar records. <laughs> <laughs> the first time we've ever referenced Ravi Shankar. Shankar. Right. What's up? It's now? the Ravi Shankar episode. Who was the guy? Zamfir. Remember Zamfir? Yes, the master the of the pants. <laughs> That's fucking this awesome. The first time we've mentioned him on this yeah. podcast. So I like it. It's uh, I, I think, yeah, I think they were nastier, heels i only strikes me as the kind of heel and look we both lived through the only eras but I, I don't remember anybody ever cheering for Oli 
even as a heel, it didn't. Nobody was cheering for Ole because you really did. Well, hate he did have that one babyface run before he turned on Dusty and Jordan. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. But I'm I'm talking about as a heel. And oh, the, okay. The point really I'm trying to make is. Uh, Tully and Arn actually had a lot of people cheering for them, even though they were heels because they were the quote unquote cool heels. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there is a difference. Yeah. So also uh, Arn uh, with Bobby Eaton, with Larry Zabisco, great teams, uh, Oli, great teams with Gene, great teams with Lars. And uh, of course, a very underrated tag team, his tag team with Ivan Koloff, uh, who obviously, and pretty much every guy I mentioned on this list is a, a tag team Hall of Famer because they've been on. Uh, several great uh, tag teams. But yeah, as I was watching this match, I was like, wow, these are four guys that just absolutely as tag team wrestlers completely kicked ass. The interesting thing was, this is a really, really good match. And by all accounts, everything I've heard is that Ole Anderson hated Memphis style wrestling. Right. And the fact that he was able to go in and have great, eh, he's a professional, I get that. But, you know, here he's working against guys whose style uh, he really didn't care for, but he was still able. And I thought one of the things was interesting that you really don't always see, because as you mentioned, you know, the working the arm thing. And usually a lot of times, in an, especially in an Ole Anderson match, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get like yep. work on the arm, you know, quick tag, work the arm, quick tag kind of thing. But what they did in this match that I thought was interesting was towards the beginning of the match, it was the baby faces working over the heel. Like I think it was Ole, where Ole couldn't get to his corner for a while. And the baby faces were kind of putting a whooping on him before he makes the tag. And then the, the, uh, it's reversed and the heels start working on, uh, on Ricky. And I love the shot where the camera zooms in and only puts his boot right in front of, uh, uh, right on, uh, Ricky's face. That was, that was really good stuff. But yeah, this is, uh, this is about as good as tag team wrestling got, uh, certainly in 1986. I don't think there's any question about that bear. Yeah, no, it, it really is good, too. And this is, uh, you know, they, it was such an exciting promotion. And I remember being a fan back at this stage, too. And I would I would record. We didn't have DVRs and all that shit back then. So I would record. I would set my recorder and I would try to record every NWA show. And I was recording a lot of the WWF stuff and the WWF stuff I would put on in the background and maybe, you know, the whether whatever I was doing, play a video game. I don't know. But when the NWA came on, it was like I didn't even blink you know i had just had to watch all of it this is a a tremendous match and really so indicative of such a great era of professional wrestling so barry i asked you the other day if you recall the movie tombstone i believe kurt russell val kilmer yes a favorite of yours uh i like it a lot yeah I okay. do like it a lot. So I'm listening to a, oh, believe it or not, Barry, another podcast that is not an Arcadian Vanguard podcast, by the way. Uh, I'm listening to uh, a Vikings podcast I listen to. And the host, much like us, likes to talk about stuff other than the Minnesota Vikings. He talks music and movies and stuff like that, which, by the way, always makes the best podcast. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so the guy was referencing the movie Tombstone. And of course, Barry, Right off the bat, what is the number one most quoted line from the movie Tombstone? Uh, it's a Val Kilmer line. It is a Val Kilmer line, and I'm in my head, I'm picturing it. I just don't, I can't word for word remember exactly what it was. I'm your Huckleberry. That's it. Thank okay. you. Okay. Everyone knows that line. I'm well, yep. according to the host of this fine podcast that I was listening to, uh, Mr. Paul Allen, they call him PA up in the Twin Cities. He said that he mentioned this to someone, 
And the person apparently had some sort of movie connections. And the guy said to him, you know, that was not the original line that was supposed to be done. And I thought this was a very interesting story. According to what this guy told a PA, the line originally was, I'm your huckleberer, because that is the expression, uh, according to the story that I heard, huckleberer is somebody that will, uh, if you're uh, killed, will carry your casket to the gravesite. That was the terminology used at that point. The line in the script was, uh, according to what he said, was that Val Kilmer was supposed to say, I'm your huckleberer. Meaning that once Val Kilmer's character, I think he was Doc Holliday, once yep. he killed this guy, he said, I ha- I'm going to kill you, and then I have respect for you, so I'm going to carry your casket to the graveyard. However, Val decided to edit uh, as he was speaking the line and said the line, I'm your Huckleberry. A little change in movie history, Barry. A little change with that, too, and I'll tell you what, that's not surprising. Have you seen the Val documentary, which I believe is called Val? I have not, but I've heard it's excellent. It is excellent, too, and it's not a happy-go-lucky documentary, Jeff, so it's not like you're going to walk away and be like, yay, let me go out and, you know, splash in puddles and eat some cotton candy, uh, which you may do, but I don't think so. It's fairly depressing in the fact that – Val is uh, he can be really can't speak. He's got to put the voice modulator to his throat. Uh, He doesn't look great. And he's not an old guy. He's maybe 60. Uh, But here was a guy that was really on top of his craft. He was on top of his game and uh, was struck. I believe it was throat cancer or, or cancer of the lymph nodes. I forget exactly. But he had a reputation prior to that for being really difficult to work with. And uh I think his career was already starting to suffer because of that. Do you remember that movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau? Yes. Yes, I do. Horrific movie. Yes, got very bad reviews. Really? And it's it's an un, almost unwatchable in a lot of ways, unless you're watching it like a car accident, because it's uh, it doesn't it's not watchable in any form. But uh, he he got a really bad reputation for fighting with the director. And a lot of that is actually included in this movie. Apparently Val walked around with a video camera from the early days of his career, even before his career even took off and would record a lot of stuff happening on set. And he was kind of a douchebag and I'm a big Val Kilmer fan. So I can say that he, his, a lot of his behavior was completely douchebaggish and, uh, the way he was treating this uh, this director and they almost get into it a couple of times. It, it just really, uh, really something to see. But if you like Val Kilmer or at least if you've seen his movies, I, I do highly recommend this documentary, Jeff, because it is touching at times. Uh, sad, you know, real genius. It's probably in my top 10 movies at this stage, if, if not top 15. I just love the movie and it's so sad to see. At this stage where Val is, he has a very appears to have a very good relationship with his son uh, and his daughter. And that actually makes me really happy. His daughter, Jeff, something you can relate to right now because you and I are both watching it. But the relationship between Bosch and his daughter, there appears to be a similar type of connection between Val Kilmer and his daughter. So I'll say that uh, for those of you that weren't around, uh, maybe our younger listeners, Val Kilmer uh, I'm going to say for about a five to 10 year window, uh, when he made like the doors, uh, oh, yeah. when he made heat 
uh, he was like a, a big Hollywood sex symbol. I, you know, good looking guy. Uh, and to, to hear that he's had all these physical problems and infirmities, it's just really sad. But uh, yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm your Huckleberry was not the line as intended. So kind of interesting story. Barry, next. Oh, the folks occasionally reach out to me for more court stories. Now, Barry, I happen to know, and I'll break a little cave babe on this. Okay. Barry is not always a fan of the court story. <laughs> but if there's one thing I know Barry does love, yes. it's a little court story and pornography uh, involved in that court story. Because That's true. It, That's very true. big, big fan of porno. But anyway, he's single now, folks. What can I say? So it harkened back to a trial that was done. I want to say this was late 80s, maybe early 90s. Now, Barry, being a man of a certain age, I know that you remember when there used to be such a thing. They are no longer around, as far as I know, as, oh, the old local adult video store, okay? So, and these were the places, again, for our younger people that may not have been able to experience it and have the benefit <clears throat> of uh, your streaming services, your U-porn, that kind of thing. Uh, you would go into these places, much as was featured in one of our uh, favorite shows, Barry, that we've spoken about more than once, uh, The Deuce. Uh, you'd go in, pop the quarter into the machine, and you get your little eight millimeter uh, pornography action. Uh, uh, Barry, by the way, have you ever uh, experienced the quarter in the machine uh, when you were living in New York? <laughs> do you want to reveal that for the good folks? Because I can say I never did. I, of course I have, Jeff. Of okay, well, thank you. I have. Thank, thank you. Yes. Shame. 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 Yes. Anyway, so uh, as it happened one day in the courtroom of the lovely uh, Judge Susan Lebo. Jeff, uh, Jeff, I got to interrupt you. Have you ever, it, only because, did you know about some of the porno booths in New York, what they were? Uh, I got to be honest with you, because I never lived in New York City, I probably never had the occasion to go in uh, oh. to one of those facilities, especially so, uh, if you ever went in with, like with a blue light. <laughs> you <definitely no>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't want to. Well, that's for sure. But so there used to be and I, I think Howard Baum could probably attest to this because I've actually uh, I know that he's been to a few of these. Wait, but are you saying Alleg Howard Baum is a fan of pornography? Uh, allegedly. Yes. Allegedly. Yes, let's put yeah, that in your context. There. The places there was a place called Show World in New York. And it was it was famous. It was where they would debut all the you know, you're going back to the 70s and probably early 80s. But when a porno movie came out like, uh, you know, Debbie does Dallas or Deep Throat, a big one. And I don't know. Uh, so I'm sorry, Barry, were, were those uh, porno movies? Uh, I'm not familiar with those titles. Having no <laughs> Allegedly, they are. <laughs> yes. They would debut them at the show world because this was it was multi-floor. I think it was two or three floors. It was a big deal. It was almost like going to this giant video arcade of pornography. And they would had they had your movie booths. You would put your quarter in and then it would play for 90 seconds, whatever it was. But this was the kicker, especially when I was young, Jeff. This no longer exists. You would buy these tokens. They were a dollar a piece. You would put it into the slot in a booth and then essentially a curtain would rise and there would be a girl dancing directly in front of you and you were encouraged to touch her. You would put your arm through this and touch her and then you would have to tip her. Allegedly, this is what I've been told, Jeff. Now, wasn't that the basic premise of the video for the tube song, She's a Beauty? 
I don't remember, but it sounds like it could it's be. A, it's a great mid '80s song. Uh, yeah. uh, Tubes. She's a beauty. Uh, anyway, so getting back to uh, our trial in Broward County with the Honorable Judge Susan Lebo, lovely woman. So we have this trial, and things were uh, of such a nature that you could be arrested for, uh, oh, what is it, possession of lewd materials, uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, on on a few occasions, what they would do is. Uh, if you uh, went into the old mom and pop video store right down the end of the street uh, and they had that. Oh, Barry, you remember that little section that was uh, had the beaded curtains? Oh, yeah. Go in there and uh, you, oh, know, yeah. You, you try to get in and out of that section as quickly as possible so that no one you knew walked in there on you. So anyway. So we had an occasion where uh, someone had been charged with solicitation of uh, lewd materials. OK, so that was the basic premise. We're doing this trial. OK. And what happens is, uh, 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 this was this is one of these cases I'll never forget, Barry. They end up showing the video, and it was a kid that was basically, I think, like a clerk at, at this uh, video store, okay? And so uh, they, uh, it, so it wasn't like this was Al Goldstein or something, you know, major pornographer. It was like a poor kid that worked at a at a mom and pop video store. And so I remember that the attorney for the defendant was a gentleman who is still practicing down in Brown County named Jamie Benjamin. Jamie Benjamin was a guy whose specialty was obscenity law, okay? He was the guy that would represent the strip joints, uh, the uh, the adult video stores and stuff like that. That was his specialty of law, okay? And so anyway, so he was, uh, for the defense, the prosecutor was a Korean guy whose name was Key Ng, okay? Uh, I still remember because of, of two things that happened in this trial that were very interesting. Uh, so anyway, uh, at some point, uh, a video is shown of one of the films that was on the little uh, drop the quarter in the slot. And uh, and so, of course, they're showing it to the jury, okay? So naturally, there's a bigger crowd than usual in the courtroom that day, Barry. Go figure. And uh, so the film is being watched, da-da-da-da. And uh, we're seeing fairly graphic sex scene. And so uh, at the end of the movie, the judge says, okay, uh, we're going to take a brief recess. And the jury goes into the jury room, and uh, the judge says, okay, everyone take a 10-minute break. And so uh, everybody, the defense attorneys, the defendant, the prosecutor, all the gallery in the in the courtroom, they all leave. Now, the only people in the courtroom are myself, the court bailiff, and the judge, okay? And the judge is kind of sitting there, and I believe she's filing her nails, as she was wont to do. She looks at the court deputy, who was a woman who was a, a pretty good friend of hers, and she goes, all I know is that woman in the video did not look like she was having a good time. The, the woman that was, of course, getting fucked on the video. Uh, she <laughs> yes. did not think she was having a good time. That's so all. anyway, so then everything goes back. It's time for closing arguments by both parties. The defense attorney goes first in this case. He gets up and he's hammering the fact that uh, this is, you know, this is now, uh, by God, uh, it's the 1990s. This is no longer the 1950s and the puritanical society we lived in then. He goes over in the courtroom and he picks the flag in the courtroom out of its little stand, walks over in front of the prosecutor and goes, this gentleman, the prosecutor, would have himself and he starts waving the flag in the courtroom, okay? He would wrap himself in the American flag and tell you this is against everything decent in American society, okay? Then he goes, puts the flag back. So now it's time for the prosecutor to get up and give his closing argument, okay? 
And so he goes over and he says, you know what? He goes, the defense attorney, he comes up and he waves the flag. And, you know, he wants to say that I'm wrapping myself in the, the American flag. He goes, no, no, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what I'm wrapping myself in? And he holds up uh, a copy of the, you know, the rules that every courtroom has. Uh, it's like the, the Florida rules of criminal procedure or something like that. And he goes, this, this is what I'm holding myself accountable to, the laws of criminal procedure and the laws of the state of Florida. So he goes to throw the book. Now that he's done with his little uh, example there, he goes to kind of toss the book back on his own desk, okay? Except as he goes to do that, the book slips out of his hand, okay? It comes out of his hand, hits the defense table, bounces, he's thrown it so hard, bounces off the defense table, whizzes past the defendant's head. He almost hit the defendant right in the head and goes flying past the guy. The state attorney then runs over the defendant and goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. It was an acquittal. That's <laughs> you know, great. You know, wow. When the guy, when the guy uh, basically makes everyone feel sorry for the defendant, because he threw, he threw yeah. the book. He literally threw the <laughs> book at the defendant. So not yeah. guilty. Oh, Barry, the obscenity trials in Broward County. Fun, fun stuff. I bet they were, too. I bet, you know, it's a I know all, everybody. It's kind of everybody's probably got this impression like shit. You know, you're seeing all these trials and it's great. But as you know, you know, you could tell people, Jeff, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of stuff that's not interesting. But every so often you get one of these zingers and, you know, Kathy Willits, for example. And yeah, yeah. You've had a couple. That's a that's a great I, story. I used to say that my job as an in-court clerk was either complete and utter chaos or it was okay, what's going on? We're gonna start court here. You had it was it was never an in-between. You were either com in a complete chaos or a complete boredom. You know, there were there's no like middle of the ground, okay, I'm just a little bit busy here. It's nice and relaxing. It was either one or the other end. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, Bear. Yeah, that's a good story, and you should stick to that one. So, Barry, as we do the old go-home, want to remind the good folks out there, especially the preferred customers, the subscribers to our Patreon episodes, episode four coming out only two days from now, as Greg Gagne will be joining us answering subscriber questions, Barry. How can you get a better deal than that, my man? Yeah, and we're not kidding. Look, I, uh, I, I, I do say every interview is my favorite, and a lot of times I actually mean that. But I got to tell you, what Greg brought forth. First off, Jeff, you'd have to agree he is a really warm and engaging guy. There is no pretense of uh, of anything. This is a guy that you meet him, you have a conversation with him, and then you walk away feeling like. I think I've just made a friend like this guy is just so warm and engaging. The other is, and I'm going to assume this, that I believe Greg has lived a life of sobriety because his recollection and memory is spot on. I will just offer this up. First of all, uh, two things. First of all, while we were interviewing Greg, I texted Barry mid uh, mid recording and said, man, you got to get this guy down to loots. Uh, you true. know, him and Brunzel would be a great headliner, uh, even though eh, not a huge CWF uh, connection to him, but just both good guys, great recollections of their AWA days. And, you know, Jim, uh, perhaps appearing in a few more territories than Greg, but just both guys that are great storytellers. Barry, what do you think? Talk to Penzer. Let's get these guys to the one after the November loose. Uh, 
fanfare. Yeah, it, it, there is a definite, you know, and this is something that Penzer and I have talked about too. And this probably, if you think about it, shouldn't be a shock to anybody, but our, our talent list of guys that worked CWF is rapidly dwindling. And there's literally just a handful of guys out there that we haven't brought in that did work CWF. So we are starting to look, and I think we're going to eventually, it'll be like CWF fan fest and, or legends, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to retinker and, and retool this whole thing. But, uh, Jeff did Jeff's Jeff is he's, he's legit. He did text me during that, uh, that interview. And I think he and Brunzel as a, as dinner guests doing the Q and a would be great. I would also like to pair them uh, somebody that's been on my radar that we were trying to get for this next fan fest, unfortunately already booked, I believe in Texas they are, which is demolition. And it would be every uh, gimmick that Bill Eady has had, which is superstar, Mongol, strong machine, uh, demolition, whatever else. I'm sure there's more that's out there. And then Barry Darso, who was Crusher Khrushchev and Barry Darso in uh you know, repo man and just a whole bunch other, uh, of gimmicks. So I would like to actually pair all four of those guys together and maybe have a discussion on tag team wrestling. I think that would be pretty cool, Jeff. You know, instead of two guys, you'd actually be getting eight, you know, at least all, right. All the gimmicks, like you know, you does get, it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyway, so, okay. As we do the old go home, first of all, I'll state that, uh, breaking K Pable Badger and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, uh, for my co-host Barry Rosen, our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman. Uh, we would thank you for listening. Last thing I'm going to say, Barry. Yes. Had our old friend, John Lee reach out to us today from where? Wales, John Lee in Facebook jail. So no. if you don't see John on the old Breaking k Fable Bowden and Barry Facebook page for a few days, well, apparently John said something a little inappropriate. He oh. did it, I believe, on the 605 page, not on our page, because he would certainly not defame or defile the good folks at Breaking k Fable Bowden and Barry. Uh, the 605 page, that's another story, Barry. So anyway, on that note, John, we hope you come back soon. And Lou, take it home, my friend.